Hey folks, you're listening to To Know the Land, broadcasting for the Treaty Territories in the Mississauga of the Credit on 93.3 FM at the University of Guelph. Maybe you're listening through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you listen to your podcasts. It's a show about our connections with the land base, how we interact with the land, how we learn about the land, how we defend the land. My name is Byron, and today I'm thinking about you. Um, the conifer, the, the, the shrub, the tree, I guess it takes many forms and it's been on my mind for a while and I've been trying to do a bunch of research and if I could describe my desk right now, it's, uh, kind of a mess. Uh, lots of books strewn about open spines cracked, um, with other books in the distance, books piled on other books, lots of ID books to try and get better descriptions to use, um, lots of books like on the topic of conifers. I have a giant book on uh, ornamentals, botany in a day, medicinal and other uses of North American plants. I'm just trying to just go through a bunch of my resources to find out more information about yous because I'm really intrigued by them right now. Um, yeah, a little bit of backstory. I'm going to be doing a workshop with someone soon on bioregional herbalism and the focus is on trees. And it'll probably, it'll be in January and I said, you know, I'd like to teach about, uh, you know, hemlock, balsam, fir, and you, and how to differentiate them. And, you know, in the beginning, I thought I had a pretty solid understanding of how to differentiate them. And I think I did. But through this research, it's just like little bits would like sort of tug a string and irritate me. And I'd have to look into a little bit more and then something else would come up and it would irritate me and I'd have to look into a little bit more. And now I'm just a nerd. I'm just really pouring it all out for the Taxus genus. And it's it's Taxus, T-A-X-U-S. And uh, it's there's a lot going on. There's so much going on. And like anything, you know, when you, when you start pulling on that thread, you start to see how much more there is out there. What what exactly is going on? How things are so much more than what they appear superficially. And then I'm finding some complications in the research, some uh, areas where, you know, some researchers say one thing, others say another, or where there's an assumption of what research has been made. But when you look into it, no research has been made. And that's interesting and something I'm, I'm really threw me for a loop. I had written up this whole blog post. I I'd had this whole idea for the show. And then I realized through looking at these papers and these books that the, the, the information I was about to present could have been wrong. So I had to go back and it's now my timeline is a lot shorter for getting this done because I had to revise a lot of what I'd written and all my notes and stuff. So 
I'm just going to get into it. Um, yeah. So I really wanted to focus on Canada U because it is the native indigenous species to my area here in Guelph, Ontario. Um, it's the only U that would be here if it wasn't for <clears throat> uh, introduced species from Europe and Asia. And so I really wanted to focus on Canada U. And so uh, uh, let me just give a brief description of the Canada U. So it's in the kingdom plantae, clade tracheophytes, clade gymnosperms, you know, naked seeds, division pinophyta, class Pinos pinopsida, order cuprosalis, uh, family taxaceae, uh, genus taxis. So this is this is a description for the Taxus canadensis or the Canada U, which other common names include ground hemlock, American U, and Eastern U. The needles are about 1.5 to 3 centimeters long, 20 to 33 millimeters wide. They're flat, they're stalked, uh, long, glossy, dark green on top might appear a bit more reddish in the winter. Uh, the leaves have these really identifiable, sharp, pointy points at the end. Uh, it's called mucronate, uh, the, the, the leaf form. And it could be confused with eastern hemlock or uh, some fir species like balsam fir, Picea balsamifera. But the latter two species, they lack that mucronate leaf tips, the spiky pointy leaf tip. And I used that to identify something that somebody had previously identified as a U as not a U. Uh, the bark is thin, scaly, reddish brown, papery kind of bark. Pollen cones are about 3.5 millimeters in diameter. Um, and the seed is enclosed in a very, very, uh, uh, very recognizable fleshy red cup uh, shaped fruit. It's called an aril, A-R-I-L, the aril, with an opening at the end, um, which you can see uh, the seed within. The arils, uh, I, I first thought it was like a modified cone, like from a juniper communist, uh, the red cedar, but it's not. Uh, it's formed by two fused modified scale leaves and is about one centimeter in diameter. Um, its habitat, uh, or what's habit rather, is, is, is prostrate, uh, low sprawling branching, forms dense clusters in forests. Uh, this, the low-lying leader branches can root when they come into contact with the ground and they can spread pretty wide. Um, be a giant clone that covers a bigger area. Um, much more low and sprawling, the Canada U is compared to other U species. And um, most often it's a dioecious tree producing its seeds and pollen cones on different plants. But some individuals have both seed and pollen, pollen cones. So some individuals are monoecious, which is kind of cool. Some are dioecious, some are monoecious. I haven't got the chance to really research that part yet because I've been trapped in some other areas. Um, yeah, and that's the Canada U. And actually, it, it's, 
it's been complicated because I have been researching on iNaturalist. Uh, I'm, I live fairly close to the University of Guelph's Arboretum. And I've been out like sort of hunting down ewes, looking for them so I can take photographs and, and research these photographs and just see the plant. But even when people have identified Canada U and iNaturalist and I've gone out to find the plants, they've been misidentified. You know, it's a, a, it's a balsam fir that maybe the leader has been eaten a couple of times, fed on by like deer or, or damaged somehow. And so it becomes like a low growing spreading plant or the Canada U that's listed at the Arboretum isn't really a Canada U. And they actually have it labeled at the Arboretum as, you know, Taxus cuspidata, the Japanese U, or uh, the Taxus uh, media. And the Taxus media um, is, is a intermediate U. It means, you know, like it's a hybrid between the Taxus bricata, the European or English U, and the Taxus cuspidata, the Japanese U. So I still haven't found a Canada U, even though that's that's been the focus of my research and supposedly, you know, the one that's more common around here, but I can't find one. Um, yeah, and then I've been I've been trying to think about that in, in the context of like it's supposed to grow in understories of rich, shady, damp, wet woods, uh, thickets, bogs, and coniferous forests, the well-drained. Like think of cool places might be look, worthwhile looking uh, for Canada U on north-facing slopes uh, and ravines, maybe found with an overstory of sugar maples, yellow birch, red oak. Um, but a lot of these forest types, which would have sustained the U, don't exist in my relatively urban environment. Um, I am in an urban environment, but I'm right on the edge, luckily, but still the, the spaces nearby don't facilitate plants like that. So I have to I have to look harder, I suppose, and maybe look further afield. And yeah, so I can't find the U, the Canada U that I've been looking for. And I, when I started writing about the U's, I found that I found that um, I, I assumed all U's were the same. I assumed all U's had the same backstory, but they don't. And, you know, when I started writing and preparing for the show, I assumed that all U species were toxic. And from what I'm reading in the literature, it seems like a few other of the authors think the same thing. But I've only found one paper which described a poisoning from Canada U. The Taxus canadensis, but the description they had was at best poor, and or for a less generous reading is inaccurate, and I can't be certain of the fact that the plant that they were talking about that had poisoned someone was Taxus canadensis, and so I'm I'm at this tricky spot. The article was cardiotoxicity resulting from you plant. And I'll put a link in my blog to it later but um it, it, it's it's 
tricky because some places say, you know, it is poison. Some say it isn't, but there's no research on it. They're just lumping it in with other other yew plants, like especially Taxus baccata, the English yew, or Taxus cuspidata, the Japanese yew. And they're, they're, they're just saying across the board, these, these same, similar plants, these plants of the same family, all have these same toxic qualities. But it's complicated. So going forward, I'm going to present the information um, on yew species, uh, the ones that I'm learning about here, as, you know, the other... Uh, I'm going to present information on toxicity of the yew species in regards to the other yews, which are commonly planted as ornamentals and may be found as, like, escapees um, in the landscape. Because it's curious and it's neat how these toxins work. If you've a couple of shows back, we had the Death and Decomposers show. I was talking about Amanita toxins from uh, deadly gallerina mushrooms. And um, I'm curious about the toxins in the use as well. So I don't know why. Part of my character, I suppose. But um, yeah, one thing to note, and really that got me on this whole kick, is because when we're trying to identify use and how they might look like eastern hemlock or balsam firs, uh, it's good to know what yews look like because they're the only poisonous conifers in southern Ontario. You know, like, uh, or potentially if we think of the Kennedy, but even these ornamental species which have escaped, they're the only poisonous conifers in southern Ontario. So it's good to know what they look like so that when we're tasting, and a lot of people learn their, you know, edible teas and stuff from cedar and white pine and these other things, uh, the use are very important to know. So while the description I gave before, the Canada use is still relevant, it doesn't cover the exact habits and characteristics of other use species, which are a little bit more complicated. And I'm not going to try and describe all use species here, but let's, let's get into some of the other neat features, and that could be the taxines. And the taxines are, let me spell it, T-A-X-I-N-E-S. The taxines are the active toxic alkaloids that are found in the branches, the leaves, the buds, and the seeds of most use. And they inhibit, from what I've, what I've learned about, and I'm not a chemist, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor, but what I'm learning about is that they inhibit normal sodium and calcium exchange across heart muscle cells. And that depresses the electrical conduction across the heart. So if your body runs on small electrical pulses to make things happen, that slows or depresses these, these electrical pulses. This can slow the heart rate, bradycardia. It can make the beat more, make the heart beat more regularly, arrhythmia, or it can even stop the heart, death, right? If, if any of this taxine is ingested. They're also vasodilators, which lowers blood pressure, hypotension. But I've also read, um, who was it? Uh, one of my books here. I've also read that it can increase blood pressure. But I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that. I think, I think the author, uh, Thomas Alpo and Botany Today, I think he's incorrect in his reading on that from what I imagine 
the body does. But I'm still I'm still learning myself. So let's get either it's it sounds like from what I'm learning, it's hypotension. It lowers the blood pressure. So slow to no heartbeat with low blood pressure. You know, that that's a bad scene. Uh, most papers I've come across noted highest taxing concentrations in the plant in January, yet the toxins persist throughout the year. So any time of year, they're there. Uh, the leaves and seeds are often described as being the most toxic parts of the plants. Taxines were once thought to be a simple compound, but now they're considered to be many different alkaloids. And uh, from there's this paper I read, September 2005 issue of Veterinary Medicine called The Dangers of You Ingestion. It says, the amount of plant material required to obtain a lethal dose is quite small. The minimum lethal dose in dogs is about 2.3 grams of leaves. 2.3 grams of leaves. Or about 11 milligrams of the taxine alkaloids. So a dog would consu could consume a potentially lethal dose uh, from a taxis species just from like branches or sticks, like chewing on the branches or sticks, a game of fetch. Since cases have been recorded in which horses have collapsed within 15 minutes, horses collapsed within 15 minutes of consuming taxa species, absorption of ingested taxine alkaloids in, in uh, monogastric animals is rapid. So one stomached animals. And then like the OMAFRA, uh, Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs, they have an article, You Poisoning in Horses and Ruminants, Ruminants, pardon me. It says that for a 454 kilogram horse or about a thousand pounds, as little as 227 grams or half a pound of you needles could be fatal, half a pound for a regular sized horse, which really points to how powerful the ewes can be. You know, that's pretty impressive. But like, again, Omafra uh, does not indicate which ewe species they're talking about here, um, which frustrates me because I want to know, are they, no one mentions the Taxus canadensis. I don't know if they're talking about it. And from what I've been reading, I don't know. I don't think so. It might be the Taxus Bacata, the English U, which seems to be poipal. People are pointing to that one as being the most toxic, but I'm not sure yet. In the book, uh, Plants Poisonous to Livestock by Harold C. Long, uh, the process from ingestion to death is described with detail explaining what the symptoms looked like when ingesting small amounts, larger but not lethal amounts, and then deadly amounts. It's pretty extensive in the descriptions. But uh, when small amounts of you are ingested, there may be signs of excitement, slight rise in temperature, uh, and maybe that's it. But then when the consumption of larger but not fatal amounts, uh, it presents with more Pronounced excitements, nausea, vomiting, slowing of respiration and circulation, and diminished senses. Um, the author then describes the temperatures, uh, that the temperatures are lower and extremities get, get cool on the animals. That's probably the slow 
slow uh, blood pressure, the low blood pressure, blood's not getting to the extremities, it's not keeping things warm. Um, the poison animal's head, their, ha their head hangs. They might start to belch a bit and the belly may start to swell. Some animals lie down while others just stand there, nearly motionless. Um, and then here's a direct quote. Um, Fatal quantities, the foregoing symptoms may be followed by coma with death in two hours or more after poisoning, but more generally and usually in horses, asses, and mules, but also in cattle, there is no period of coma. The excitement is less pronounced and often unobserved, and death appears very sudden. The animals stop, shake their heads, respiration is modified, there is falling, and death with sometimes convulsions, results in the sensation of the heart's action. So again, that's from Plants Poisonous to Livestock by Harold C. Long. So everybody that I've read about it is talking mostly about poisoning to livestock and that being, you know, like that, that's of how things seem to work in the world that's that's of economic importance to a lot of people so that's what the focus is that's what people are researching and learning about so that's where the the, the research funding comes from too so uh, that's the information i have but there's some information that i've been getting from different papers or, or different uh articles in different magazines uh, mostly things that I've been finding online. My libraries, it's extensive, but it covers a lot of different things. So not enough on toxicology, um, which maybe I need to get into, but not enough on the chemical structures of a lot of plants. So I'm still learning and I'm still picking up things here and there, but I have to go with resources that I'm finding on the internet. But one of the lucky things is I can share all the resources that I'm finding on the internet. So I hope I can do that with this show. Um, check the show notes and hopefully I can, you can check out some of these links. Uh, one thing I wrote was that while toxic for many domestic animals, such as horses, pigs, donkeys, cattle, you is a common food source for white-tailed deer and moose to the point where one paper noted that the increase in white-tailed herbivory may lead to the extirpation of Taxus canadensis in some areas. So the Canada U, this here is a reference specifically to Canada U, is under pressure from over, overeating from, from uh, white-tailed deer populations. And since uh, European invasion, there has been more, more white-tailed deer. There was a a quick decline and then a bounce back um, in white-tailed deer populations. And so this, this overpopulation consumes more of the plants. The plants become harder to find. And like I mentioned earlier, habitat loss in general, um, it's harder to find uh, the, the Taxus canadensis. But some papers indicate that uh, the rumen fluid in the white-tails as being a fundamental function in breaking down taxines, the, the, the alkaloids, the toxic alkaloids. But I've also read and, and included, I'll include, include in the links that y'all can read, other articles where many ungulates have been reported to have died from U ingestion. 
So I, 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 this gets me to wonder, like, which ewes are they eating that they're dying from? Which are they eating that's, you know, they're not dying from? Uh, I'm also wondering, is it something about in their stomach that's breaking down the taxines? Is there like microbes or a certain biome that's uh, really beneficial to the, to the ungulates that's breaking things down? Um, and if some individuals, do they lack that substance or process in their digestive system that breaks down the taxines? Um, yeah, because if some are surviving and some aren't, and there's recorded bits of both, and like one paper describes like a possible threat to use as being over overconsumption by these animals, whereas other articles are saying, you know, like, the animals themselves are dying from consuming it. Something is tricky there. Something is tricky that needs to be looked at a bit more carefully. So I'm I'm curious about that. But through all this, um, you know, like some are, are ta toxic to people, some toxic to animals. The papers, I've read a lot of papers on uh, poisoning of people uh, consuming them either by accident or intentionally and, and becoming poisoned by the ewes. And this gets me curious because I, I can't remember what it was, but I remember maybe it was, I was, I was on a walk somewhere and we were talking about poisonous, we were talking about ewes and how they're poisoned. And an older woman said, what do you mean? We used to eat them all the time as a kid back in England. And this got me thinking a long time ago about use and, you know, like it, 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 it sort of got stored somewhere in my mind and then doing this research came up again. And I think, I think that woman is right. She wasn't misidentifying the use, but what people often do is they gloss over because it's such a dangerous plant that that arrow, that red, seed covering that fruit the modified scales on on the leaves are in fact edible and i'm not saying that like go out and eat it because <clears throat> it's actually pretty tricky to separate the fruit from the seed and you could get seed particulate and the seed particulate can kill you really quickly like we've covered that it's deadly the entire plant except for this arrow is deadly so that's important to take into account and and not mess around with. But at the same time, I I went and looked at these arrows and I carefully peeled away the arrow from one of the Japanese used the Taxus cuspidata, and I ate it. And I was very careful not to include the seed, and I left some of the flesh on the on the plant, but um it was lightly sweet, uh, fresh, fruity tasting. There was snow on the ground. It had frosted a few times. Maybe it has an effect on the sweetness. I'm not sure. It was raspberry-like or maybe thimbleberry-like, but without the tartness, which I really appreciated. I, I enjoyed the taste of it. And I do believe that in the future, I will likely make my way back again to try 
some more of the fruit in the future. Um, yeah, I, I did. I did go. I went to a class, a gym class, and uh, was working really hard. And my heart was pounding. And I was like, thought, you know, like, oh, man, I'm going to die. But it, I was like, is this because of the fruit? You know, but this was a day later. And I was just working really hard at the gym, so it wasn't it wasn't the you, it was it was just my weak my weak ass heart. But um, I thought it was so beautiful to find this wonderful flavor on a toxic plant, you know. And it reminded me of the first time I tried a mayapple, uh, Podophyllum peltatum, uh, the mayapple fruit. Uh, sometimes I call it booger fruit because it's like snot. And I was on my way to Hamilton, Ontario, and I stopped to go see a waterfall and growing alongside of the path were the mayapples. And the entire plant of the mayapple, including the fruit, is toxic until the fruit turns the right color, the right shade of yellow, and you open up and the fruit has to be the right shade as well. And I tried that and it was delicious. It tasted great. And I liked it a lot. I can't even remember the taste, but I remember enjoying it. Um, you know, it too was sweet and delicious. I remember that. But the remainder of the plant is totally toxic, though not as deadly as you. Not as deadly as you. So, um, and like I mentioned before, I've been on the search for Canada U in my area, and I've not found anything. And like looking for it, trying to find it. And it's been really hard to find. I've been finding the, the Japanese U, the one that I tasted, um, both on the University of Guelph campus and actually in like a lot of neighbors' yards. It's around a lot. And in one of the books I have describes uh, the taxes as being, you know, commonly planted ornamentally to the point where it's kind of ubiquitous and boring. Um, what book is that? That's the Man Manual of Woody Landscape Plants, Their Identification, Ornamental Characteristics, Culture, and Propagation and Uses by Michael A. Durer. And uh, yeah, he, he describes it as to the, it's boring. Like they're so ubiquitous. They're so everywhere because they make for a great ornamental. But this isn't the Kennedy. These are all these introduced species. So it's not necessarily the most fun to, to be finding these. But what this does do though, is, is it brings out the search. The search definitely continues to try and understand more about these U's. Like where is Texas Canadensis? Where is the Canada U? Is I need to find some papers and folks doing research on it who can tell me whether it's as uh, toxic as as the European and Japanese U's are, um, is the Pacific U, the other U out west, is that one toxic? Is uh, the Florida U, uh, Texas Floridanus, is that one toxic? That one's endemic to one little spot on one side of a river in a park down in Florida. That's the only place you can find that species. And then there's so much more. There's like uh, taxanes or taxanes, T-A-X-A, 
NES, which are chemicals that are found in the Canada U and in the Pacific U that are potentially useful for fighting cancer. Not potentially, they are useful for fighting cancer. So people have been propagating them along the East Coast in Canada and doing a lot of research into which which genetic variants allow for more taxanes to be found in the plants so they can propagate larger plants with more taxanes so they can use this material that can't be synthesized in a lab uh, in, in, in making more medicine to fight cancer. Um, so this that's a whole other side of things that I still need to learn about because, like I said, you pull on a thread and the whole thing starts to unravel and you start to see all these hidden facets and features that are very much beyond the superficial. Yeah, I feel like I've just been ranting for a long time, but the user, they're, they're beautiful to look at. They are lovely to investigate. I'm having a lot of fun learning about them. And there's a bit of an edge to it because it could be poison, could be deadly. The ones that I, the ones that I am hanging out with, are the Taxus cuspidata, they are deadly. So it's kind of like got to be careful while you're researching, which kind of is fun to hang out with a plant that could kill you if you don't treat it the right way. So it's a great lesson in respect and patience. But um, I'm also just so appreciative that that here's this wonderful teacher that holds mysteries on mysteries on mysteries. And so no wonder that I've been going hard at it and like really, really thinking about you. It keeps coming up. Yeah, if you want to learn more, check out the website, knowtheland.com. Um, check out the show notes. I'm going to have all the links there so that people can learn about you a bit more. I'm going to try and type up all this information that I know so far into a blog and so people can research that. I may not have time until my break from work, the two weeks we have off from school. Um, but I hope to get it all there and maybe learn some more between now and then. Um, there's some resources I could probably look into more, maybe at the University of Guelph in the library there. They have a much more extensive library than I have. So that could be a good place to keep searching, looking for toxicology reports on, on the contents of, of Canada U. But yeah, check out the website if you want to learn more about the show or or even, you know, that blog post in the future, whenever you listen to this, to knowtheland.com. And if you have any questions or ideas or like links or research that you want to point out to me, I'm so happy to hear it. Uh, you can email me at toknowtheland at gmail.com or you can also surprisingly enough, uh, find To Know The Land now on Instagram, which is kind of weird, but I'm trying to branch out, I suppose. And I think uh, you can just reach me at To Know The Land. 
And so there's a few posts now with different blog posts and different uh, shows that I've, I've posted on there. So yeah, check out the Instagram account as well at to know the land if you have an Instagram account. And also before I close out the show, I want to say thanks again for listening. Uh, it's great that folks are listening to the show. I really appreciate it. And if you appreciate it, feel free or consider making a donation. I have a new Patreon account that you can find or a PayPal account that you can send money to for uh, paying for the website. It's $269 a year to at least just host the website. That doesn't account for any of the work that goes into it. That's just to host it. And uh, in 2022, I had enough donations to pay for half of that. So that was great. I'm really grateful for that. Um, but if you want to learn more about how to donate, it's toknowtheland.com forward slash donate. And that really helps. So thank you to everybody who does that. I appreciate it. Shout outs to Stephanie Scott, my most recent patron. I appreciate it a lot. I think that's it. That's all. Take care.